welcome everyone. I'm here with Tim Powers. Tim, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So today we're going to talk about paranormal activity, not the movie, but the experiences that folks have had in the past. Nothing to his recollection has ever happened to him that he would classify as a paranormal experience. He has been very adjacent to some of this activity by having a friendship with Philip K. Dick back in the day. I'm sure there was some crazy stuff that happened from that, but also Actually, just yeah. researching. Oh, I, I, it sounds like I just jogged a memory of something, but let's get back to that. You have interest in the paranormal. And as part of that, and some of the research that you've done, there's been a lot of things that are intriguing. And the first thing I think we should touch on is you were looking at actual transcripts on exorcisms. I cut you off before we started the interview because I thought this is something that's intriguing. And by the way, like every other guest that I have, Tim is terrified of Ouija boards, as am I, by the way, for a very explicit reason. So go ahead, Tim. What what did you find when you were looking at these transcripts? Well, I didn't. As I was telling you, I thought it would be interesting to write a sort of exorcist book set here in San Bernardino. Interesting location in that it's on the edge of the Mojave Desert and so forth. And my wife was working at the local parish office. So I had all the details about how a parish is run, goofy stories, funny stories. And I had a book by Malachi Martin, which was actually transcripts of real exorcisms. So it would have a priest colon, blah, 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 devil colon, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, wow, I've, I've got everything I need here. I've got actual dialogue with demons in addition to my mundane research. But on the front flyleaf of this book was a printed piece of paper that said, the author and publisher advised the reader to say the following prayer before and after reading every chapter. I shut the book and put it away. And wrote something else. So, Tim, there's a show on Amazon <laughs> where they go to a house that is allegedly possessed by demons or in, inhabited or infested, whatever the proper terminology is. And there is a warning at the beginning of the film saying that demons can propagate through various media, including video. So be forewarned. So I immediately like, nope, <laughs> not watching this. Look, I'm yeah. not I'm not afraid of much, Tim, but that is the one thing that my Catholic upbringing has made me absolutely terrified of. Well, I'm glad it mess with that. I'm glad it has stuck with you. I like to think that Catholicism is like a virus. You might be in remission <laughs> for decades, but one morning you wake up and it's all over you again. But yeah, I'd rather camp out at Chernobyl than actually play with Ouija boards. For one book of mine, I had to get a Rider weight deck of tarot cards. They're the ones with a picture on every card, and they're intriguing, mystifying pictures. A seashore with three swords stuck upright in the sand and a hooded woman weeping in the foreground. And you think, what is that? What's that? It's, it's an illustration for a story. What's the story? And so I made a lot of use of that deck. 
but I would never shuffle it. <laughs> One time at a convention, somebody was doing tarot card readings, and they said, Powers, let me uh, do a reading for you. And I said, no, nah, I'll pass. And a girl came up afterward and said, you were smart to pass on that. I used to do tarot readings all the time, and I looked at it as my movable window, which I could relocate to get the facts about any situation I was curious about. And then late one rainy night, I was laying out my movable window, and I got the clear impression that something on the other side had blundered past and looked in at me. I knocked the cards to the ground, but I knew it was too late. It now knew me and where I lived. <laughs> and so I thought, see, that's that's why I won't do it. So funny you mentioned that. I actually this morning interviewed Angela Ford, who was in the Stargate program. Oh, yeah. But while she initially did extended remote viewing, she also did automatic writing and sometimes used tarot cards. At the very beginning, it was eschewed in the unit because for various reasons, most of which is it wasn't scientifically valid as remote viewing was. But I think there's something to all this stuff. Remote viewing is packaged in a way that is more acceptable to yeah, definitely. It's presented as cutting-edge science. Right. Um, and I, I think all of these things work in certain ways. They're just different methods of focusing whatever abilities that people have. Now, some of these things, though, I think are even people who claim to be mediums and things like that will tell you not to use Ouija boards. Yeah, well, as I was saying earlier, even materialist psychologists don't like them. I don't know what it is they think is going to come creeping through, but they, they do advise against it. Basically, everybody has the hard wiring in the bottommost parts of their brains that responds to this stuff, that thinks, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, mm -hmm. I've known lots of materialist atheists who say, well, I'm not scared of, you know, ghosts and demons and stuff. I'm scared of uh, terrorists and urban gangs. And I think, sure, it's a sunny day. There's a lot of people around. But I know if that person was the only one in an otherwise empty house at 3 a.m. and they heard something dragging downstairs, they're not going to say, I bet that's an urban gang member. They know exactly what it is. It's a werewolf. Well, for one thing, if people didn't have that circuitry, that susceptibility, nobody would read my books or, or any fantasy stories. Atheists say, I I can't watch a movie like The Ring. And say, well, you don't believe in any of that stuff. No, they don't. But their bottom brain does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> their bottom brain gets all in an uproar. Well, it's like a cat's instinctual response to anything that remotely resembles a snake. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading about some experiment where uh, scientists raised like 10,000 chickens in a warehouse, million generations. Any particular chicken, his great-great-great-grandfather never saw the sky, but they cut out the silhouette of a hawk 
out of cardboard and ran it under the ceiling on a string and the chickens all went nuts. And if you had asked any of the chickens, how come you went crazy when that cardboard thing went over? He's, I don't know, man, but that thing gives me the creeps. It's like silhouette recognition on a very deep level. Well, you're familiar with the Uncanny Valley, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Which raises a question of we're hardwired to see something that is close to human, but not exactly human. That's registering more fear than something that's obviously doesn't look human, which leads you to ask the question, what in our distant evolutionary memory looked very close to human? Yes. You should absolutely be terrified. There's a book idea, right? (laughs) Yeah. What's what's being triggered there? In fact, every now and then you meet a person who triggers that uncanny valley effect. You think he's talking, but he's not a real guy. (laughs) Let's, let's, Have you met any investment bankers? Actually, no, I don't think I have. I, I should probably keep alert if I ever do. They're not all that way, but my first job at a business school was an investment banker. And there were people who there was just something not human about. It's probably sociopathy or psychopathy, but there's just something about some people yeah, that Philip K. Dick said once that when God turns on the big light, there'll be a whole bunch of empty spaces where a moment before we thought we saw people. And what does that mean to you? Actually, day to day, I don't expect to be meeting such. It's more in cases where you're looking at, say, you're looking at YouTube and you're looking at prominent politicians or prominent social policymakers, and you think, you know, I bet when the light comes on, there's nobody standing there. Mm -hmm. And it's that feeling over the last decade is feels like it's heightened, but not just, and I don't mean just in a malevolent way. I mean, like in an intellectual way, some of these people have such a high intellectual deficit that you just wonder how yeah. did they get to where they are? Yeah. Like what happened? Yeah. I remember the first time I was probably a teenager when I saw on the news some politician talking and I realized he's not very smart. Yeah. Uh, and it was alarming. It was as if you noticed that the pilot of the plane you're getting on is drunk. You think, wait a minute, but he's in charge. As it's alarming that we've got people who visibly aren't very smart in charge. Well, the other, well, the, the scarier ones, and I, I'm trying to, I'll tell you who this, you'll probably be able to figure out who this politician is with context, but I'm trying to be relatively neutral. But there are some politicians who will constantly blame somebody else for high gas prices. And then you kind of say, you do know that in your state, there, it's the highest gas tax in the country, right? You know, there is something you could do about that, right? Right? You could do something about that. And the next day, and it'll be about 80 people who make that point. And then the next day, same, similar tweet. Then the day after that, similar tweet. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And at some point you wonder, this person's not the the stupid. They are willfully engaging in this lie of not taking responsibility for anything. Well, yeah, it's sort of like when you get into an argument, debate, polite 
discussion and you have a disagreement and you present definitive evidence that in fact you're correct and the next day they come back with the same argument i said don't you remember yesterday i showed you look and and you acknowledged it which of course means there's no teeth on that gear wheel you're not going to get any progress made and so you go home and play with the cats yeah i mean they're either stupid or psychopaths because psychopath by doing that doesn't drive them crazy but it drives you crazy and that's the point that's true so Philip K. Dick, Philip Dick. <laughs> what what sorts of things in your interaction with him that he may have related to you that were just odd or otherworldly or in some well, way? Well, he was a big fan of the I Ching divination, old Chinese device. In fact, when he wrote The Man in the High Castle, at many points throughout that novel, the characters confronted with some awful problem, throw the I Ching and use the results to decide what they're going to do. And at those points when he was writing the novel, he did throw the I Ching and gave his characters the results that he got and had them behave accordingly. And so in a way, the I Ching was kind of a collaborator with him on that novel. Because he had the characters do what the I Ching advised as he got it for them. And when I knew him, he had a battered old copy of the standard old I Ching text with an introduction by Carl Jung. And when he would have girlfriend problems, he was always hauling it out and throwing the coins and noting the hexagrams and looking it up. And it was always somehow seemed always to be late at night and we'd always had a few glasses of wine and i swear he got real results valid responses from the I Ching, which made me resolve never to touch the thing yeah he consistently had his faith in it apparently confirmed sometimes he was mad at it sometimes he objected to the answers and he'd put the thing outside overnight to teach it to be a little more cooperative but yeah he was always pretty credulous with it what sorts of things did he use it for aside from helping him resolve plot points and character points and mostly girlfriend problems is she interested in me is she interested in him why is she acting so weird stuff like that i don't know much about the I Ching, but how would it present solutions to him well what you get is six lines depending on whether you get heads or tails with these three coins that you throw and there can be what they call a moving line which is maybe you got like three heads or three tails. And that kind of indicates, see the footnote. And there's 64 possible answers, as I recall. And given these 64 possible answers and the possible footnotes, there's really an answer for virtually any question if you're willing to say, okay, it's a metaphor. How does this metaphor apply to my situation i know he always said there was a 65th hexagram 
and the 65th hexagram was University Avenue off-ramp. And nobody ever got it till somebody asked the question, how do I get to Berkeley from here? Well, he joked about everything. He believed he had been contacted by God most of the time. Other times he thought that was just acid flashback or something. Is but, any of this schizophrenia or symptoms of schizophrenia? I don't think so, no. He only found young ladies attractive, or at least very frequently found young ladies attractive, if they did appear to be in some need of psychiatric help. This wasn't uniform, but they figured substantially. And so he found himself in some colorful situations sometimes. and put himself in the way of weird trouble but no i I don't think he was uh, schizophrenic or in any way more mentally unbalanced than all the rest of us but he would get in all kinds of weird trouble at one point his house in northern california was broken into while he was out and it did happen i've seen photographs Every window was broken in, and below the window outside were heavy boot prints and piles of heavy-duty Ziploc bags. And when he went in, he found, for example, that all opened food packages had been taken away. Like if he had two boxes of Cheerios and one had been opened, it was gone. But unopened box was still there and also they blew open his file cabinet which had been locked and one of the few things they stole was a page of latin that he had written apparently while on acid even though he himself didn't read or write latin i mean this is what he told me given provocations like that you're likely to kind of fall a little bit on the paranoid side. Do you know what the phrase was? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a million dollar question right there. Well, he often would say things like, my research is into the Neoplatonists, Neo-Socratic, Paracelsus, etc., have led me to this fact this secret only six people in history have become aware of this secret every one of whom died within 24 hours of learning it i want to tell it to you we said no phil no shut up i don't want to hear it i think in those cases he was kidding us yeah because he didn't die within 24 hours so to your point about the i ching in using that to resolve plot points in Man in the High Castle. I've interviewed a remote viewer who, Laurie Williams, who was trained by Lynn Buchanan, who was one of the members of the Stargate program. And she teaches remote viewing, and a lot of her students are actually writers of historical fiction. (laughs) And the reason that they use remote viewing is if there's a detail or a fact that they cannot get through conventional means, they'll go back and remote view and try to get some semblance of 
what the you know actual reality was. Anyway, I thought remote viewing the into the, into the past. Yeah, so that's the other thing about remote viewing. So if you get into really kind of esoteric quantum mechanics, right? All time is simultaneous. So it shouldn't matter if you can view into the future or the past. I just because it's all happening simultaneously. I just rely on books myself. Yeah, well, they do that. They do too. But anyway, it's a use case. How it works for them, I don't know. But it was. I thought it was. It's kind of like using the I Ching and. and yes, and it is. Yeah. Ways. So, what other strange, strange things? Oh uh, well, God spoke to him. <laughs> yeah, unpack that. When he said God, what does he? Does he actually mean God? Does he mean his higher self? Does he mean? No, he meant he. Well, the thing is, with Phil Dick, you had to always keep in mind that every day he would have a different opinion. For example, some days he was Episcopalian, some days he was Orthodox Jewish, other times he was some sort of Gnostic derivation, other times he'd be a total skeptic. And so a lot of interviews of him are misleading because they interviewed him on the day he was, God knows what, you know, Episcopalian. And they walked away with that conclusion. And you think, no, if you had gone back the next day, He'd have been Orthodox Jewish. Don't assume you got a portrait. He was always very unskeptical, always very willing to consider somebody's evidence. He didn't have the reflex of dismissing it out of hand. When he looked more closely, he would often dismiss it, but it was never an automatic reflex with him. He always thought, well, maybe I should check it out. And then he, he one time in an interview said, I am invariably convinced by the most recent argument brought to bear. <laughs> which which was pretty much sort of true of him. You'd walk away thinking, well, now I know how he thinks. Yeah, you know how he thinks today or an hour ago, at least. I've worked for CEOs who are like that. <laughs> which can be really problematic because there's one answer that works best and then everything else is. Well, as a friend who was also a science fiction writer, it was great. I mean, he had the perfect mindset for that. Yeah, would be willing to consider. Now, outside of Philip K. Dick, what other people have you met who've gone through some of these paranormal experiences or what interests you about the paranormal? Well, I'm, pretty well a skeptic catholic so i do believe supernatural does occur every sunday at mass for example but if somebody was to tell me they saw a ghost i'd be polite but i'd think yeah i bet you saw a ghost i'd be skeptical but the reason i like to write fantasy novels is that we do still have Every one of us does still have that circuitry in our heads that lights up at that provocation. So since that can be a literarily effective thing to do, I figure, why not use it? Get that sort of shivery, numinous, sort of wider, scary perspective in the reader. Since the response is there to be got. It's sort of as if I know some people have said to me, 
when you're going to write a real novel about divorces and people losing their jobs and, and people getting cancer and you know yeah, traditional literary novel all that uplifting stuff and it always strikes me as the same as asking a painter why don't you do a painting and not use the color blue i think well the color blue is there people do see it why should i arbitrarily restrict myself and that sort of response to the supernatural is in everybody's head ready ready to be provoked what if it's not supernatural well it almost wouldn't matter even if it's just some sort of uh genetic memory of when we were all hominids climbing around in trees in africa the fact is that that response can be got mm-hmm. and even if it's a completely unsupernatural some sort of vestigial silhouette recognition in people's heads it still does get that shivery effect like well here's here's something even crazier right what if as i know as i said earlier what if all time simultaneous and we're all op- occupying the same physical spaces, except we're just resonating at different frequencies. And what if ghosts are simply real people bleeding over for a glimpse in time into our reality? And it just appears that they were operating in a distant past, but time is simultaneous. Again, I'm not saying that's what is, but uh, that would also be an effective thing in that it would ring right. those old Jungian bells just as effectively as if it were actually supernatural. Right. Uh, I think Carl Jung's idea of the archetypes as almost like living entities is down in the sort of common water table that we all of our individual wells connect to. I love the idea myself, but even if it's not true, even if Carl Jung was just telling fairy tales, it's an idea that humans respond to so whether it's true or not the response occurs and the response is what i want to evoke in readers also i think it's true so for folks who haven't read carl young can you briefly just summarize the well, carl young of course was a swiss psychologist who noticed that recurrent figures in the dreams and fantasies of his patients corresponded to mythological figures and situations, even though the individual patients may very well never have heard of the mythologies in question. And he thought, okay, these figures and situations appear to be imprinted from birth. You might learn about Dionysus or who have you, mm-hmm. but even if you don't, the Dionysus figure is going to be there in your subconscious, ready to be wrung like a tuning fork. And so he cooked up this theory of archetypes, which correspond to the major arcana in the tarot deck. And by recognizing them, in your dreams, I suppose. Presumably, there was some sort of therapeutic value to be got. 
I always sort of stopped before that and thought, I don't care if it's therapeutic or not. It, it's damn fascinating. And I don't even care if it's true or not. It's fascinating and does evoke kind of a resonance in readers. Now, one thing we haven't talked about yet, but I'm going to throw this out there. In 2018, the Pentagon released these cockpit videos of what they're calling now UAPs, which is a, just another word for UFOs that's not as Latin. What's your view on that whole phenomenon? Well, as a matter of fact, my most recent book dealt with them. What it Anonymous Aerial AEP? Anyway, UFOs, yeah. Unidentified aerial phenomena. Right. Well, I remember looking at the videos that the Pentagon released and Navy flyers and reading the accounts. And I noted things like they would disappear abruptly. They would move at incredible speeds, you know, Mach 5, and make abrupt acute turns and i thought okay well nothing can do that no physical object can do that i mean never mind what would happen to a passenger in a vehicle that was traveling at mach 5 and abruptly with no deceleration changed course the atoms would fall apart matter would bust up and so i thought okay well they're not real objects then what are they? They're obviously not physical things like my phone. And I thought of Flatland. Do you remember Flatland? Uh, book by yeah, it's in the late 1800s. Yeah, it's about a yeah. two-dimensional world. Yeah, I think looking a two-dimension, at, you know, two-dimensional world, and the inhabitants have no conception of up or down, above, below. And, for example, the only way they could recognize a circle would be if it, the line they perceived didn't change its length as they moved around it. A rectangle would appear to shrink and expand, shrink and expand as they moved around it. I thought, well, now, if I was looking at that world, that little two-dimensional sheet there, and I was to poke my fingers into it, how would they perceive that? they'd see sudden appearance of five lines, which then would abruptly disappear. They would be like creatures inhabiting the surface of a pond if somebody threw a pair of shoes into the pond. They would not be able to perceive it as a pair of shoes or my fingers poking into their two-dimensional world. They'd perceive it in their limited sensorium i thought that's what these ufos are absolutely absolutely could be from a higher physical dimension right they are from a dimension that by comparison ours looks like flatland and they're interfering with us and since we can't comprehend the full scope of them we see only the interference Mm-hmm. which is these silvery-looking things that make abrupt changes in course. Now, I'm not saying this is real, but right. as a basis of a book, it was a lot of fun. I love messing with scarcely comprehended math and science in my books. 
I'll read something about like Young's two slit experiment with the electrons going through one slit or the other. Oh yeah, the Mickelson, the Mickelson experiment. Right. The fringe patterns, right. And and you get the interference fringes on the screen behind it. I'll read that and think that'd be cool in a novel. And having misunderstood it, I'll get some colorful effect in a book. Like somebody might say, Powers, that was micro phenomena. You've made it macro like you can drive a car in it. In fact, that's kind of cool. What if you had a big wall with two vertical openings and you drive a car through one or you drive two cars through at the same time? What would constitute interference fringes? Anyway, (laughs) by, by translating these physics phenomena from a micro subatomic level to macro something in your front yard, it can make for very good fantasy story effects. Though a real physicist would say, Powers, your misunderstanding of this issue is enormous. I think it's it's a it's ghosts. What do you want? Yeah, it's a I mean it's at the it's at the micro level for sure, but there's a book and it might well be out of date at this point. I mean, the book's still around, but the concepts in it might not change. But you should check out. It's called Stalking the Wild Pendulum by Itzhak Bentov. Hmm. And it covers exactly some of these things. He talks about this pendulum experiment, right? Where you're moving a pendulum back and forth. But when it stops, there's something called Planck's length, which is some infinitely tessimally small period in time where all the molecules in that ball wink out of existence because that's the length at which quantum effects start. And for that instant, that ball is everywhere and nowhere all at once. Because I, of this. See, I love the, I love this kind of thing. I would have a guy with a pendulum causing some kind of weird effect with that. And I would say, well, you know, it's it's because of Max Planck and quanta and Einstein well, invoked it with the photoelectric effect. And this is trust me. Yeah. So this goes with the everything is resonating. It's coherent at a certain wavelength and frequency, right? But at that point, it reaches the point of decoherence, where it's everywhere and nowhere all at once. And it's traveling at you know an infinite speed. That's why we can never. So the moment you get to the speed of light, as you continue going forward, time becomes space-like, right? As time approaches zero, you're everywhere all at once. And that's, again, a principle behind this remote viewing as to why people can see in distant space and time because they're tapping into this collective unconscious right and they're viewing something that's coming at from a higher dimensional waveform it's like the signal line all that stuff now it sounds impressive it could well yeah it yes. sounds great it, it's, I, yeah i i could use all that verbatim in a book <laughs> feel but, free you can, well, you can watch the episode like, and use it <laughs> I, i've always been fascinated with the idea since i first heard the term maxwell's demon you think aha what is that no is that like the heat death of the universe or something like that like i can't well it's if you got two containers they're both room temperature but the connecting tube there's a demon in there and he throws the hot fast moving molecules this way and the slow moving molecules the other way 
And pretty soon you've got a hot canister and a cold canister because the demon divvied out the fast molecules from the slow ones. So it turns oh. out not to be um, supernatural the way uh, I assumed when I first heard the term. But yeah, I love trying to sort of illegitimately hijack that stuff into fiction. Yeah, and that's the great part about fiction is you don't even have to be right, right? Well, if you're writing fantasy, you can't be. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. But it still lends a weight to it. But definitely yeah. check that out. It is very easy to read and it'll make you think. Now, I don't know if there have been subsequent advances in quantum mechanics and unified field theory, which they still haven't figured now, out. What, what was the adjective? Stalking the wild pendulum? Or... Stalking the wild pendulum. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see, it was watch. written in the 1970s, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty old, but everybody who was in that remote viewing program will tell you to look at it. And there are a lot of people who, when recommended to read this book, particularly before they go into their careers, a lot of physicists will read this before they become physicists <laughs> and and will go back and say, this is amazing. But it it tries to link all of this phenomena that would be considered supernatural with scientific phenomena. It goes through the concept of being in a holographic universe. Not that we're in a simulation, but that we are just three-dimensional or four-dimensional if you include time projections of higher dimensional beings so well I, it does tickle that sort of part of your brain that wants there to be uh wider and wilder scope than what the world ostensibly presents well as a catholic you're i'm sure you're well familiar with pascal's wager Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think he could have been more definitive about it. I think, well, no, it, it, it's like betting on whether a penny will come up heads or tails when we can see it. Look, it's heads. <laughs> and it's useful, I think, in fiction writing, just incidentally, side benefit, to have a perspective that is not widely shared. Mm -hmm. I think the default belief among most science fiction fantasy writers is kind of a vague agnosticism. Amiable, but just not coherent. And so I think it's useful to have a perspective that is not that, just for avoiding conformity. I think that's a great point at which we should probably end this episode because we still need to talk about your writing so oh yeah i i appreciate your time and this is a fascinating wide-ranging discussion that i hope makes people think and hopes give you know, and hopes it gives people ideas they're free to steal mine because i'm stealing it from <laughs> other people anyway so it doesn't really matter yeah and i like my idea of the cars driving through the two slits i'd have uh, to reread the experiment to actually maybe maybe they'll become one car on the far side of the wall or, or uh, it could be what happened with the philadelphia experiment right right <laughs>
where there's just some people again i don't even know if that's that's real right but the stories are certainly interesting it's colorful you got to give it that yeah but and again my mind would go to more of a horror sort of thing so you know people <laughs> would certainly decohere in certain ways <laughs> all right well thank you again my friend very good talk to you next time if you enjoyed this video hit like and subscribe and i'll see you next time Thank <laughs> you.